0: To the last book in the Bible. We're in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 19 this morning. We arrive at the center of Jesus' message to the seven churches. It is the longest message of the seven, and it is the message to Thyatira. So in the Roman Empire, Thyatira was a manufacturing giant every imaginable industry could be found in this city. But Thyatira was most famous for its purple textiles. Now, I don't know if you know anything about the production of purple in the ancient world, but it was exceedingly difficult to make purple. It took loads of little snails, and they crushed them and got these purple juices out of them, concentrated them, boiled them. It took weeks, even months. They would test to see if the purple had reached the right color, not by looking at it, but by dipping their finger in this vat and tasting it. So purple was hard to come by, and it was very expensive. In Acts 16, we read about the very first Christian convert in the city of Philippi, and her name was Lydia. Lydia. Lydia was a seller of all things purple. She traded in purple goods, which probably means that she was a very wealthy woman. But Lydia wasn't from Philippi. She was from Thyatira, the city to which Jesus speaks today. So purple, expensive, Only, really, the fabulously wealthy could afford to wear garments that were purple, and so purple was the color of royalty, the color of kings. How fitting it is, then, that this letter, this message to Thyatira, is full of images from Israel's kings. But even more, underlying this message is a prophecy. A prophecy about the one king to rule them all. The Son of Man, the Son of David, the Son of God. And what we will see today in Jesus' message to Thyatira is what is the situation in this city? What's going on? What's what's going well? What's going not so well? And then how does that relate to us today? And then through this message, what are the promises that Jesus sets before the church? That's what we hope to see today today. But why don't we read this message that Jesus speaks to the city of Thyatira, the church of Thyatira? Please follow along with me. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceeded the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed the churches let's pray give us ear ears that will hear what your Holy Spirit says father give us hearts that are open that are laid bare by your word and see here treasures magnificent treasures eternal treasures our only hope in life and death. Speak to us this morning, Father, through your word. Use use this man's mouth to speak the truths of God and use these humble ears in this room to hear them. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Again, we see the opening that we should read as to the pastor of the church in Thyatira, write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Back in chapter 1, when the apostle John was taken up in the Spirit, he saw this awesome and terrifying vision, and it so terrified him that he fell on the ground like a dead man. In chapter 1, verse 13, what he sees is one like a son of man. So there's something about this glorious being that resembles a human, a son of man, but he is so otherly, so different. He is a being like a blazing inferno with the brilliance of the noonday sun. He he is like a son of man, but he is completely different than any other man or woman that history has ever seen. And so remember two things. One, the seven golden lampstands that are seen in this vision are symbolic of these seven churches. Two, Thyatira is the message in the middle of the seven. And right here, from the middle of the seven golden lampstands, this one, like a son of man, declares his name for the first time. The Son of God. This is the only time in Revelation that the name Son of God is used. Such a name does not, does not mean that Jesus is the child of God, like he was born. It means that he is the divine person of the Trinity who took on human flesh, who became a man, and like a loyal son, perfectly obeyed the will of his Father. Begotten, not born, like we sang earlier The Son of God is the most precious name of Jesus in the Gospels because the name Son of God is the very deepest part of Jesus' identity. In fact, the Gospel of Mark, which is a Gospel all about this mysterious man named Jesus. Who is he? What is he about? That Gospel doesn't reveal Jesus to be the Son of God until Jesus is hanging dead on the cross. Because Jesus' true nature cannot be perceived apart from the sacrifice of the cross. And that perception of Jesus' true nature is then confirmed in a tomb that is empty. And though Jesus is the Son of God above everything else, the cross proves that he is worthy of such a name he is willing to lay down his life in obedience to the Father, in love for the church, for his bride, for us. Because Jesus is worthy, because he is humble, because he is victorious, the nations are his now to command. And the earth is his to possess because he is worthy. And this is a precious fulfillment of an ancient prophecy in Psalm 2. As for me, says the Lord, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So this is a prophecy about the Davidic king, about the Messiah, the king that will reign forever and whose dominion will stretch across the whole earth. He is the one king to rule all other kings. He is the Lord before which all other lords must bow. All peoples, all nations, the earth and everything within it are his. And this king is the only begotten son of God. The Father has given the Son this most precious gift, the earth and the nations that dwell there. Will this glorious king allow what he has been given to become corrupted and to putrefy? Will he burn it all up with fire so he can start again? No. Praise God because this is true for us as well. He takes what is ugly And he makes it beautiful. He takes what was irredeemable and he redeems it. He takes what was unclean and he makes it holy. He takes what was in bondage and he frees it. And any that refuse this kind of glorious transformation, they will be removed, they will be separated, they will experience the fire. Not the whole earth. Another prophecy of this servant king. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and who stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will ma- I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out of the prison, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. From the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Jesus, the Son of God, the King of kings, he is our living covenant by which we have access to the Father, to God. He has made a way. He is the one that has brought light to our blindness and that has purchased freedom from our chains. He is the one that makes all things new. And this prophecy says that he will not rest until he has established justice on the earth. And every coastland loves his law. He will not rest until that is accomplished. And all these marvelous truths, all these glories are wrapped up in the name, the Son of God. This glorious name comes bursting out of the center of the church. And yes, it is from within the church that the Son of God conquers the nations. Not with swords, but with righteousness, with peace, and with joy. And since the Son of God transforms and recreates from within the midst of the church, then he is jealous that his church first be transformed and recreated. And so he casts his fiery gaze first upon the church. Let's look at verse 19 again. Jesus says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works succeeded your first. So when we read that the Son of God has eyes like a flame of fire, in verse 18, that's not meant to be literal, just as he does not have a literal sword coming out of his mouth. It means that he sees everything, that his sight pierces even the darkest places. And he sees and he knows the works of every human being. And he sees and he knows the works of the church in Thyatira, now, this is a church that truly understood what it means to have faith. For they, they love, they serve, they patiently endured the persecutions that were common to, Christian, to Christians in that century. They faced the hostilities of apostate Jews and the rejection of a society that demanded they worship Caesar. Trade guilds dominated the manufacturing scene there in Thyatira. And so if a trade guild did not accept you, you did not work in that trade. You were barred from it. You couldn't get into it. Every single one of the trade guilds in Thyatira demanded you pledge loyalty, make an oath to Caesar, that you call Caesar Lord. For the Christians who refused to make that oath it meant that they were barred from participating in the flourishing economy of Thyatira. They were they were barred from society in many ways. Yet they patiently endured it, knowing that such mandates would not overcome them, but that through the reign of the Son of God, they would overcome the mandates. And indeed, it seemed... That the overcoming was already well underway. For the works of the Thyatira church were only increasing. That's what we read there in verse 18. Their latter works were exceeding their first works. In other words, their ministry was increasing. Their expressions of love through service were getting better, were getting louder, were becoming more effective. I think that if we ever face mandates that restrict our interactions with society, then we can learn a lot from Thyatira, not becoming fearful or embittered, but growing instead in love, in service, in our faith, in patient endurance. Certainly, this is well-pleasing to the king. He's commending the Thyatiran church for this. But in Thyatira, there was a problem. There was a major problem. Look now at verses 20 and 21. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. If you're unfamiliar with Jezebel, she's one of the most infamous characters of the Old Testament. She was a pagan queen of Israel, the wife of King Ahab, and a nemesis to the prophet Elijah. We read about her in one place, in 1 Kings chapter 21. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, Whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. So, perhaps more than any other figure, Jezebel was poison to Israel. Her marriage to Ahab was a sad turning point in Israel's history, and it sped up the kingdom of Israel's long march into Assyria and into oblivion. Now, a quick parenthesis here. It's important to note that when we come to the end of Revelation, there is another figure drawing heavily upon this symbolic imagery of Jezebel. She is the royal whore of Babylon. And as we will see when we get there, she symbolizes the people of Israel, throwing herself into the... Bed of other gods, poisoned by arrogance and unrepentance, and quickly marching herself into oblivion. So, we'll return to images of Jezebel towards the end of Revelation. We'll close that parenthesis. In verses 20 and 21, Jesus lists four things that characterize this evil woman. One, she calls herself a prophetess. Two, she teaches and practices sexual immorality. Three, she promotes and eats food sacrificed to idols. And four, she is defiantly unrepentant. So once again, what we are seeing is symbolic. There is not an actual woman in Thyatira named Jezebel, and likely not even a single individual that Jezebel is symbolizing. If you look down at verse 24, you see that Jesus even says that Jezebel is symbolic of a false teaching that has infiltrated that church, that that church is tolerating. And this is a false teaching that has now become very familiar to us as we have walked through these letters to the churches. The same indictment that Jesus levies against Jezebel, are the exact same indictments that he levied against Balaam in the church to Pergamum. And it's likely that the Nicolaitans were engaged in the same sim or similar type of abominable practices. We saw the Nicolaitans in Ephesus, I believe. And so as we move through Jesus' epistles to the seven churches, it becomes increasingly clear that every church is facing the same challenge or variations of that same challenge, a false teaching and evil practices that flow out of it. And so ultimately, this false teaching revolves around Roman, uh, the Roman Empire's paganism, sexual immorality, and Caesar worship. And all these things threaten to devour that first century church, like some sort of demonic beast. But I want you to know that such a false teaching was not something that ignorant and ancient people fell for. Because we have advanced now 2,000 years into the future, we are better. Our culture is saturated with these same false teachings. Instead of the pagan gods of Rome We have made gods out of ourselves. The altars of social media proves it. Sexual immorality drives our culture, and so we kill our unborn children, and we attempt to redefine biology in order that we can maintain our obsessions with sexual immorality. We might not have a Caesar to worship, but government has been practically deified with worshipers hoping in a salvation that comes through legislation. Yes, we are not so unlike Thyatira. But before Jezebel did have her way with the church in Thyatira, the Son of God will strike first. Look at verse 22 and 23. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, And those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation until they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. Jezebel would cast herself into the bed of other lovers. So Christ casts her into a bed of sickness, into her deathbed those that commit adultery with her, particularly those in the church that fornicate with her false teachings, their reward will come with the great tribulation that Jesus says in Revelation 3.10 is coming soon upon the whole world. But before that trial, he summons these people in the church to repent, to turn away and come back to him. Children of Jezebel are those that have fully embraced the false teachings. They're all in. It's as if they were born by evil. Evil is their nature, and sin comes naturally, and false teachings sound good. And the last thing that they want to do is repent of that. Jesus says that these children, just like Jezebel, will also be killed. And when Jezebel and her children are judged, then every church, all those within the kingdom of God, will know that the Son of God has eyes like a flame of fire, that he sees what no human eye can see. He sees the secret thoughts of the mind, and he sees all the way down to the depths of the heart. Nothing escapes his fiery gaze, and he gives to all according to their works." the Thyatiran church with their increasing works of love and service and faith and patient endurance will enjoy the favor of the king. And they will be rewarded and we'll see that in a couple more verses. But those that go to the bed of Jezebel and those that are born of her teachings, they will be trampled beneath the burnished burnished bronze of the king's feet. So when we see those In our world, lying in Jezebel's bed, know that the Son of God sees it too. He sees it better than you do. And he has a sickbed for them. They will not be victorious despite what it looks like today. Verse 24 says, But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Burden. So Jesus is equating Jezebel's false teaching with the deep things of Satan. And we need to see a further connection here. We saw in chapter 2, verse 9, that Jews who reject Jesus are not Jews. The Son of God says that they worship at the synagogue of Satan. And so here, with those who love the deep things of Satan, those that practice paganism and Caesar worship, they too are devil worshipers. They too worship at the synagogue of Satan. Satan. And even the godless secularism of our day is worship at the synagogue of Satan. For the godless secularism of our day rejects the Messiah, rejects the Son of God. And so if you hear our secular government or media or culture proclaim a salvation that you can find nowhere else, then open your eyes, lest you walk into the synagogue of Satan. If your hope is derived from the promises of legislators or science or celebrity, then be warned. False hopes wait for you in the bed of Jezebel. Do not hold to these teachings. Do not make these your ultimate hopes. Like we saw last week in the church of Pergamum, we cannot tolerate evil in our midst. No church can allow false teachings to infiltrate. No church can allow evil to dwell here. This is the dwelling place of the Son of God. He stands in our midst and he sees our works. Will we defy his glorious name by tolerating Jezebel in these walls? If a person repents and turns away from these things, then there is a warm welcome and a full embrace, and we will rejoice. But if repentance cannot be found, we cast those individuals out and give them up to Satan, just as we saw in last week's sermon where we read 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that. His spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So, if Jesus did not tolerate the unrepentant, then how can we? We might not be able to see into the mind and the heart as Christ can, but we can certainly see the works of a person. We can see what a person does with their hands, does with their life. And therefore, in the church, we do not judge the heart, we judge a person by their works in the church. And if their works are evil, we first call them to turn away from those works and to change. And if they refuse, then they can take their evil works elsewhere. We will not let them defile the name of Jesus in our midst. And we will pray that their exile is temporary and will lead them to a humble, repentant, joyful returning. It is our greatest hope whenever we're to cast someone out. But before we go on judging the works of other hands, we must look at the works of our own hands. Before we go digging for specks in other people's eyes, we must see the log lodged in our own. Now let us us, uh, remember the church of Ephesus. The church in Ephesus was solidly grounded in the truth. And they faithfully fought off false teachers. They identified and they cast out false teachers, but they were weak in their works of love and service to one another. Jesus condemned them for that. Now conversely, Thyatira is compromised in their doctrine, but they are exceedingly strong in their good works, which makes the church of Ephesus and the church of Thyatira something like opposites. There is always Two ways to fall off the horse. In order for the church of Thyatira to resist, to resist the false teachers, they had to first be able to identify the false teachers. And how could they identify the false teachings and the seductions of Jezebel and how dangerous she is if they were not first wholly rooted and grounded in the word of God? So in other words, it appears that the greatest problem in Thyatira was that the church, and the elders in particular, had a weak scriptural understanding, or their conviction of scripture was weak. They openly tolerated Jezebel. They didn't seem to know the peril they were in. A Christian only gets to that place by not understanding the truths of the Bible, by not being committed to the Word of God. And I'm not talking about understanding in an intellectual sense that you can rattle off data found in this book. I'm talking about knowing it in your heart. Loving it. Being changed by it. And it seems that that was the great problem in Thyatira. They were weak in this department. Again, not too different from us. We desperately need to know what the Bible says. We, we need to know this with our hearts. We need the Bible to be the lens through which we look at the whole world. The only true red pill, the only way of seeing this world for what it is, of seeing what is false and what is true, is through the Bible. It is the only way. And if that ever flips, if we ever begin looking at the Bible through the lens of the world, we are dead. We have fallen into the bed of Jezebel. We have been overcome. We must hold fast to the Word. We see that in verse 25, where the Son of God says, Only hold fast to what you have. Until I come. The church of Thyatira was to hold fast until Jesus arrived. And as we have seen now numerous times in Revelation, very soon Jesus was coming to judge. And until the enemies of Thyatira were judged, they, the church was to hang on, to hold fast. And so too must we hold fast. The calls to compromise our faith, to tolerate evil, they are constantly being shouted in our ears. And those that would strip away our conviction and make us question the word of God, they are relentless. And those that would compel us to violate our conscience for some consensus of the majority, constantly claw at our doors. Brothers and sisters, hold fast to the faith that that you have, hold fast to the gospel you have received. Yes, that's what we hold fast to. Do you realize it? We hold fast to the gospel, to the word of God. Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Philippians 2, "That that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a Crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. All those that hold fast to the confession of our hope, to our faith in the Son of God, they will not be overcome, but they are the overcomers. Let's look at verses 26 and 27. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. What I want you to do now is to open your Bible to Psalm chapter 2. We must go there. And what we will find are promises not reserved for heaven. These are promises that Jesus gives to his church in time and on earth. So this is for us to experience to some degree right now. To to understand what I mean, we have to go to Psalm 2. The language we're seeing in Revelation is Psalm 2. As I read Psalm 2, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. In eternity, no one will rage and plot against the Lord. This prophecy is fulfilled on earth in time. And the kings of the earth have been issued their warning. Bow to the Son of God or be broken into pieces. And God laughs at all of those who try to cast him off. All of us who live beneath the reign of lesser kings, let us therefore find a great hope and a strong refuge in the King of kings who is the Son of God, the only begotten who will not rest until justice floods this earth and joy fills our hearts. And until that day, as we read in Revelation 2.26, we must be about the works of Jesus. Do you know how the nations are shattered to pieces like earthen pots? Not by war, but by a church. And their works of righteousness. And we must be about these works of righteousness. What are these works? Certainly, they are the works that Thyatira was growing in love, faith, service, patient endurance. But also, I cannot help but think of the works we were told about by the one who has been given authority from the Father. When this one, this Son of God, said to us, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The Great Commission is how Jesus gives His authority over the nations to us. It is how we participate in this ever expanding kingdom and his reign on earth. He uses our mouths to proclaim the most transformational message that this planet has ever seen, through which he makes all things new. By the words of the gospel, found in these mouths, the nations will come before Jesus and they will bow down or they will be cast out, broken to pieces. This is for you, church. This authority, this rod of iron has been given to you to speak. To love with your hands. To serve. And through the proclamation of the gospel, we reign with Christ. We overcome. And we reign with Christ now because the Son of God has given to us, Himself. See that there in verse 26, 20, uh, 8, 28. He says, I will give Him the morning star. To Him who overcomes, He will be given the morning star. Jesus is the morning star. He says so Himself. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about the things for, for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus gives himself to all who hold fast to his word and to keep his works. And so there are two things that we need to learn, brothers and sisters, from the church in Thyatira. One, you have life because of the living and abiding word of Christ. That word, sustains your life right now. That word is your vaccine against ideological viruses of this age. That word is the truth upon which you can plant your feet and never be shaken. That word will keep you out of the bed of Jezebel. The living and abiding word of Christ. Two, the Son of God has given you His word. Now you must go and speak it and proclaim it and share it. He has given you Holy hands, now you must go and use them. Serve others in love. Patiently endure annoyances and differences and hostilities and all the rest. Go into all the world and be a light in the darkness. For this morning star is seen while it is yet night. A glorious signal that day is coming. Though our days are dark, I think we can all recognize that. We lift our eyes to Him, the Son of God, who is the bright and morning star. And we know that this is just the beginning. We know that the dawning of the day is coming. And with ever-increasing brilliance, the Son of God is casting away all darkness, breaking the horizon. And though it might appear slow to us right now, All things are being made new, are being brought into the light. His timing is perfect. So hold fast. Hold fast. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father God, we praise you for this great word that you have given to us. This great word through which you have transformed our hearts, and you will go on transforming this world. Father, thank you for the privilege of bringing us in to the process of that transformation, allowing us to participate in it by giving us a great commission through which you will rule the nations. It is out of this place, it is out of the church that you proclaim your glorious name to the ends of the earth. Oh God, give us hands that are faithful, to do the works of Christ. And mouths that are courageous, boldly proclaiming the Son of God who lived, who died, and who lives forevermore. We praise you in his name. Amen.